0: April Fool's. If you're a longtime listener to the show, you've probably been expecting this. After all, for the past two years, we've been working our way through the Lord of the Rings trilogy on April Fool's Day, so by now it's not really a surprise. Speaking of which, if you haven't heard them before, if you scroll back to April first, two 2017 and then 2018, you'll find the episodes where we covered The Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers, respectively. Which means, you guessed it, now it's time to finish the trilogy. This is our look at how accurate the 2003 epic conclusion to the Lord of the Rings trilogy was to the source material as we cover The Return of the King. I'm Dan LeFebvre and this is Based on a True Story. Before starting our story today, we need to set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're a long-time listener, you already know what that is. If you're new to the show, welcome. Here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Aragorn did not lead the dead army to destroy Mordor's forces at Minas Tirith. Number two, Frodo was not the only one who carried the ring. Sam did, too. Number three, Mary died on the battlefield at the Pelennor Fields. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one of those three things was the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. While I've got you here, if you're interested in hearing even more bonus episodes, including minisodes where we look at the history depicted in fictional movies like Captain America, Allied, Kong, Skull Island, Aladdin, and so many more, you can get instant access to all of that by supporting the podcast over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Even though this podcast is free, creating it certainly is not. So if you enjoy what you hear, I would appreciate your support. And as a little way of saying thanks, you'll get hours and hours of bonus content with even more being added all the time. Once again, that's based on a true story podcast dot com slash support. All right. Are you ready? Let's get to this as we compare the classic book with Hollywood's version of The Return of the King. Our story today opens by showing two hobbits fishing peacefully on the river. We join them just as one of them, Deagle, catches a big fish. His friend, Smeagle, roots him on. Go ahead, pull him in. Deagle is played by Thomas Robbins while Smeagle is played by Andy Circus. Despite his best efforts, the power of the fish proves too much for the halfling and Deagle is pulled into the river. The camera follows him underwater where he finally releases the fishing rod. As the fish swims off to safety, Deagle's eye catches something shiny on the bottom of the river. He reaches down, grabs it, and makes his way, coughing and sputtering to the bank of the river. Once there, Smeagol is immediately smitten by the shiny object his friend found on the bottom of the river. It's a ring. He tries to convince Deagle to give him the ring as a birthday present. It is his birthday, after all. Deagle refuses, and a fight ensues. Struggling on the ground, Smeagol manages to overcome his friend and strangles him to death. Taking the ring from his fingers, we hear Smeagle utter those words we've heard time and time again. My precious. After this, we find out how Smeagol was cast out by his family and friends for the murder of Deagle and driven to a life alone. The movie never indicates how much time passes, but... We can see that over what must be many years, the ring slowly transforms Smeagol into the creature we've seen before in the trilogy, Gollum. This is the origin story of Gollum. And more or less, the movie gets it right. Probably the biggest thing the movie changed here is the timeline. You see, this explanation of how Smeagol became Gollum was a story that Gandalf told long ago. Remember back in the first movie when we saw Bilbo having his birthday party, and then afterward the conversation Gandalf had with Frodo once Frodo realized Bilbo had left? In the Fellowship of the Ring movie, we saw Gandalf mention how Gollum was tortured and he said the words, Shire and Baggins. Well, the movie cut out that it was during that conversation when Gandalf explained to Frodo who Gollum was, and this story of Smeagol killing his friend Deagle was a big part of it. With that said, though, despite changing around the timeline to show this here in the final movie of the trilogy instead of the first, it is true that this is how Smeagol came upon the ring. His friend found it while he was fishing with Smeagol in their homeland of the Gladden Fields. For a bit of geographical context, the Shire is located on the western side of Middle Earth. If you travel from the Shire and along the East Road past Bree, like the Fellowship did, Eventually, you'll hit the Misty Mountains. The Gladden Fields are just on the other side of the Misty Mountains from the Shire, so the eastern side. Granted, the Gladden Fields are a little south too, so it's not a straight shot east, but you get the idea. Something else happened in the first movie that happened near the Gladden Fields. We've already covered the Fellowship of the Ring episode, but let's do a quick recap to see how that ties into our story today. In the introduction to the Fellowship of the Ring, we learned about how Sauron led his armies out of Mount Doom during the Second Age. The last alliance of elves and men went out to confront Sauron, and it was during the battle that the High King of Gondor, Elendil, was killed by Sauron. That's when Elendil's son, Isildur, grabbed his father's broken sword, named Narsil, and cut off Sauron's finger, separating him from the ring. So that is how Isildur got the ring. But then the ring betrayed Isildur. He was killed and the ring was lost. We see Isildur's body floating down the river after he's been shot by orcs in the first movie. The ring slips off his lifeless finger and falls to the bottom of the river. And that's where it stayed for thousands of years. Until, you guessed it, two unsuspecting hobbits were fishing on the Anduin River one day and happened upon it. Going back to the movie, after that flashback to open our movie, we're back in present day to pick up where we left off after the two towers. If you recall, in the last movie, there was a big battle where we saw Treebeard lead the Ents to defeat Sauron at Isengard. And that is where we are now. In the aftermath of the battle, Merry and Pippin are enjoying a few, as they call it, well-deserved spoils. These include salted pork, pipeweed, and a pint of something tasty. As they're enjoying each other's company, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, Gandalf, Theoden, and Eomer arrive. When they arrive, Treebeard tells Gandalf that a wizard is locked in the tower. And that's where he must stay, replies Gandalf. Even though Gimli suggests that they kill Saruman, Gandalf says, no, Saruman doesn't have any power anymore. Still, he charges Treebeard with guarding him and ensuring that he stays in the tower. At least, that's how it happens in the theatrical version of the movie. We see a little bit more of this scene in the extended edition. In that version, Sauruman shows himself to the fellowship below. From above, Sauruman holds the palantir, that seeing stone that Pippin finds in a little bit later in both versions of the film. While Saruman is talking with Gandalf, he shoots a ball of fire down on him, who is unharmed by it. Then, in retaliation, using only words, Gandalf shatters Saruman's staff while it's still in his hand. Then, from behind Saruman comes a familiar face. It's Grima Wormtongue. After Saruman slaps down Wormtongue, he pulls a knife from under his cloak, Grima does, and turns on his former master, stabbing Saruman. Down below, Legolas pulls an arrow and shoots Grima. But it's not in time. While Grima falls back with the arrow in his chest, Saruman, with a knife still in his back, falls from the top of the tower, down, down, until he's impaled on a water wheel below, killing him. That is not how it happened at all. In fact, that whole scene with Saruman and Grima Wormtongue stabbing Saruman is made up for the movie. And even though the theatrical version doesn't show this scene, that doesn't make it any closer to being accurate either. So, what really happened? Well, Saruman never really appeared after Isengard was defeated. Which, by the way, in the movie, it's only the Ents, but really it was both the Ents and the Riders of Rohan who defeated Sauruman's army. After their defeat, Saruman was trapped in Orthanc. That's the name of his massive tower in Isengard. But he never attacked the riders below like we see in the movie. Instead, he only spoke to those outside, trying to convince Gandalf and the Rohirrim to let him go. Although, maybe that's not quite the right verbiage to use because at one point Gandalf offered to let him go and to protect Saruman. But Saruman didn't trust Gandalf. Why should he leave his tower? So Gandalf cast Saruman out of the council, removing his collar so he was no longer Saruman the White. In the process, just like we see in the movie, Gandalf also split Sauron's staff. It was at this moment that Pippin noticed a dark crystal ball come falling down. It didn't crack, but it started rolling toward a nearby pool of water. However, it was never in the water like the movie shows. Pippin picked it up before it ever touched the water. He didn't know it, but this was Sauron's palantir. And soon after, Gandalf took it away from Pippin and covered it up with his cloak. Probably the biggest change in the movie here is when we see Sauron die. He didn't die here. Yes, Wormtongue was there, but the reason they show Sauron's death here is most likely because in the movie they completely remove the part where Sauron really did die. But that would transport us to the very end of The Return of the King, the second to last chapter, and that's getting ahead of our story. No, oh, and speaking of the timeline, another major change in the movie here surrounding Pippin was when he picked up the Palantir. None of that happened in The Return of the King. It actually happened back in the two towers. But in the end, Saruman, his staff, smashed and with diminishing powers stayed holed up in his tower. The Ents stayed guard to ensure he didn't try to escape and do evil elsewhere. Heading back to the movie, we follow Gandalf, Theoden. Aragorn, and the rest of the riders from Isengard to Edoras, the capital city of Rohan. It's a brief moment to celebrate the victories at the Battle of the Hornburg. That's the massive battle at Helm's Deep we saw at the end of the two towers. During this celebration, the movie heavily implies an attraction between Aragorn and Theoden's niece and goddaughter, Eowyn. This scene in Edoras didn't actually happen, but that bit of romance between Aragorn and Eowyn did. In fact, even though it never made it into the final books, at one point J.R.R. Tolkien considered marriage between Aragorn and Eowyn. However, he ultimately decided against it because he thought Aragorn was too old for her. That's why what finally made it into the book was that even though Eowyn falls for Aragorn at first, he can't return Eowyn's feelings because he is betrothed to Arwen. Back in the movie, the next scene cuts over to Frodo and Sam's journey to Mordor. If you recall from the previous movie, they have Smeagol with them now as a guide. And, similar to what we saw in The Two Towers, Smeagol is again being tormented by his other side, Gollum. We see a clever conversation taking place between Gollum and Smeagol where the filmmakers use his reflection in a small pool of water as Gollum while Smeagol is outside the reflection. It's here that we hear Gollum again speak about her. If you listen to the episode where we covered The Two Towers, That's where we ended the part of that story. Well, we don't really find out who she is yet in the movie, only that Gollum and Smeagol are debating their plan to deliver the hobbits to her. Sam, who's pretending to be asleep, overhears Gollum's evil plan and starts beating him for it. This wakes up Frodo, who doesn't know anything about what's going on, but he stops Sam from beating Gollum. None of that happened. Although it is true that Gollum had a plan to lead Frodo and Sam to her. This bit in the movie where we see Sam start to be on the offensive and Frodo's side with Gollum was added to show how Gollum was starting to fray the threads of Frodo and Sam's friendship. And yes, Gollum and Smeagol would often have dialogue with each other. The truth is that Gollum's plan was really a lot more straightforward than the movie makes it seem. Not to get too far ahead of our story, but Gollum never tried to get between Frodo and Sam in that way. His plan was simply to lead Frodo and Sam to her so that she could kill them, and he could take the ring back. But we still don't get to find out who she is quite yet. Instead, back in the movie, we see Pippin's curiosity get the better of him. They're in Edoras, and he waits until everyone is sleeping before sneaking up on Gandalf to take the Palantir. As soon as he touches the crystal ball, he sees a white tree in a courtyard made of stone. The city is on fire, but then Pippin realizes he's not alone. The eye is there, Sauron. Outwardly, we see the ball engulfed in flame. Merry screams for help and Aragorn rushes into the room to free Pippin's grasp from the Palantir. He rips it out of Pippin's hands, but then he is stuck himself, informing Sauron of Aragorn's presence. Waking up from the commotion, Gandalf leaps to action, covering the ball with a nearby blanket. Then he scolds Pippin for his foolishness before realizing Pippin meant no harm. Later, we see Gandalf meeting with everyone. He explains that, even though it was a grave mistake, perhaps some good can come of it. Pippin saw Sauron's plans—his plans to attack the city of Minas Tirith. This happened, but not in The Return of the King. This scene with the Palantir is the last chapter of Book 3 in The Two Towers. I know it sounds confusing at first, but I've mentioned this in the other episodes where we looked at the first two movies in the trilogy. But one big difference between the movies and the books is really how they're organized. In the movies, we see the camera cut back and forth between Frodo and Sam, and then back to the others. In the books, Frodo and Sam's journey are separated from the rest. So The Fellowship of the Ring had Book 1 and Book 2. Then The Two Towers has Book 3 and Book 4. The Return of the King finishes the story with Book 5 and Book 6, respectively. This scene we see here is in the final chapter of Book 3 in The Two Towers, just before the story hops over to Frodo and Sam's journey in Book 4, also in The Two Towers. With that said, Pippin's run-in with the Palantir didn't happen in Edoras like we see in the movie. As we learned earlier, the party didn't return to Edoras after Isengard—that's where they were heading—although their destination changed soon after they started on the journey. It was a journey of many days, and Pippin's curiosity didn't make it that long before it overcame him. While they were camped one night, Pippin stole the Palantir and looked into it. Just like we saw in the movie, before long, what was once a dark crystal ball was engulfed in flames. Pippin couldn't look away for some time. But then he managed to force the ball away from his hands and cried out. That's what alerted everyone else, and unlike what we see in the movie, Aragorn did not come to rip the ball out of his hands. Pippin then admitted what he had done to Gandalf, who charged him to explain what he had seen and heard. And he didn't seem mysterious like we see in the movie. Instead, Pippin told Gandalf what he saw looked like nine bats circling around a tower. Of course, he didn't know that those were not bats. They were the Nazgul. Based on Pippin's explanation, it was clear that Sauron talked to him and he thought Pippin was being held captive in Sauron's tower. After learning this, Gandalf decided they must ride to Helm's Deep, which is just to the south of Isengard. No sooner had that decision been made than dark shapes flew overhead. The Nazgul had crossed the river. The movie doesn't explain any of this, of course, because we see Pippin's version of the White Tree in Minas Tirith as being the reason why they're going there. But basically, Gandalf knew that Sauron still thought the Palantir was in Sauron's tower at Isengard. Sauron didn't know about Isengard's fall yet, so when this hobbit showed up on the Palantir, he sent a Nazgûl to get the captive and learn more about why Saruman wasn't speaking to him through the Palantir anymore, but then this hobbit shows up. Gandalf knew then it would only be a matter of time before the Nazgûl would discover Saruman was not holding the hobbit captive, but he was a captive in his own tower. They'd deliver that message back to Sauron, and it would only be a matter of time before Mordor's forces would move. So that's why, with great haste, Gandalf scooped up Pippin on his horse, Shadowfax, and they sped off toward Minas Tirith, which is just on the other side of the river from Mordor. It's a long ride from Isengard, and since the Nazgul can fly faster than horses can ride, Gandalf knew there was little time to waste if he wanted to get there before Mordor's troops were mustered to attack. Going back to the movie, for a brief moment, we're in Rivendell. Arwen had a vision of her future, and in that future, she had a son with Aragorn. She goes to her father, who was aware of this future, and she tells him that she can't leave Aragorn. We soon find out that the elves are leaving Middle-earth for the Undying Lands. As elves, they're immortal, but Arwen's heart is Aragorn's, and she's willing to remain mortal to stay with him for the sake of their son. None of that really happened. And, (laughs) well, there's not much else to say about that because it didn't happen. So, let's move on to the next part of the movie where Gandalf and Pippin arrive at Minas Tirith. Once there, Gandalf explains that there is no king. Minas Tirith is ruled by Denethor, the steward. Then, in a comedic moment, Gandalf tells Pippin not to let Denethor know anything about Frodo in the ring. Oh, and don't mention Aragorn. Also, don't mention his son, Boromir's death. In fact, it's probably best if you don't say anything at all. Inside the Great Hall, things don't go as planned. Denethor already knows about Boromir's death. He also knows about Aragorn. Pippin speaks up, much to Gandalf's dismay, and pledges his life to Denethor's service in recompense for Boromir's death. Some of that happened. Well, other bits did not. So let's clarify things. The movie is correct in showing that Thanks to the mighty shadow facts, Gandalf and Pippin arrived in Minas Tirith before anyone else. When they got there, though, Gandalf never told Pippin not to speak of Boromir's death. In fact, he told Pippin the opposite. He warned that Denethor would want to talk about his fallen son because Pippin would be able to tell him a lot about Boromir's final moments but he did warn Pippin not to mention Aragorn because he holds the rightful claim to the throne that Denethor, as steward, was sitting on when they arrived. Of course, Pippin didn't know any of that at the time. In fact, it was only at this moment when Gandalf mentioned Aragorn's kingship that Pippin's eyes were open to the clues that had been circling around him since the journey began. Although the movie is correct in showing the tone when the wizard and hobbit arrived in Minas Tirith, Even before reaching the halls of Denethor, soldiers guarding the way stopped the two travelers and questioned them. They hadn't seen a hobbit before, so they were wary of the stranger. But Gandalf, or Mithrandir as he was known in those parts, vouched for Pippin, and that seemed to be enough. When Denethor received the wizard and the hobbit to his halls, the welcome was rather cold. Denethor was holding Boromir's horn when they walked in, something Pippin recognized immediately. Denethor asked Pippin how he recognized it, and Pippin said it was because he was there when Boromir blew the horn. So, just like Gandalf said, Denethor probed more, asking Pippin to recount the tale of how Boromir died. At the end of this, just like the movie shows, Pippin swore an oath of loyalty to Denethor as a form of paying back Boromir's giving up his life to save Merry and Pippin. Although... In the movie, this oath happens a little later, after Faramir returns from Asgiliath. That's not when it happened, but we'll get back to that in a bit. After Gandalf and Pippin had their meeting with Denethor, the two left the hall side by side. Pippin asked Gandalf if he was mad at him for swearing loyalty to Denethor, to which Gandalf laughed and said he did his best. He admitted he wasn't sure what made Pippin think it was a good idea to do that, but he didn't stop it because it was a generous deed that touched Denethor's heart. Back in the movie, Gandalf is talking to Pippin and Minas Tirith about the Witch King of Angmar. He tells Pippin he's the most powerful of the Nine. Meanwhile, the camera cuts back to Frodo, Sam, and Gollum, just as they arrive at the green-colored fortress of Minas Morgul. They scatter across the path and quickly hide themselves as they start climbing the secret stair that, as Gollum says, is the way into Mordor. This basic gist is true, although in the book, he's not referred to as the Witch King, but rather the Wraith King. Close enough. For the purpose of this episode, I'll keep calling him the Witch King, though, because that's what the movie does. There's one key thing to point out that happened that the movie doesn't show. It happened as Frodo, Sam, and Gollum were hiding away as a massive horde of enemies were leaving Minas Morgul. There he was, leading his army. The Witch King. He was the Lord of the Nine, the Lord of the Nazgûl. For a brief moment, Frodo's heart nearly stopped as the Witch-King started looking around. He couldn't see the eyes beneath his dark hamlet, but he knew the Witch-King was searching for something for him. Slowly, as he watched the evil searching for him, his hand started to move as if of its own accord. It was creeping toward the ring as it lay around his neck. Then... Frodo's own will managed to move his other hand towards something else. It found it. Grasped it. As he held tight onto the fire of Galadriel, the light within helped Frodo forget about the ring. He had almost put the ring on. Surely an end to the journey. But he had resisted. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four-hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden, I had a huge, unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then, because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust member FDIC. Thanks, Ernin. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Going back to the movie's timeline, when Denethor refuses to call for Rohan's aid, Gandalf does something about it himself. Well, sort of. He tells Pippin to climb a tower and light the beacon to call for aid. Before he does, though, the camera cuts to orcs crossing a river. We see Faramir and his men preparing for the attack behind some defenses. The orcs rush off the boat, but Faramir waits. Waits. Then, suddenly, he and his men attack. As they're fighting, the camera cuts back to Pippin, climbing up the beacon. Careful not to alert the guard, Pippin climbs to the top of the pile of wood in the tower and sets it ablaze. The beacon is lit. This triggers a chain reaction across the countryside until— Finally, we see Aragorn on the other end noticing the beacon off in the distance. He rushes to find Theoden. The beacons of Minas Tirith. The beacons are lit. Gondor calls for aid. Theoden looks up from the table he's standing at. After a pause, and Rohan will answer. That happened. Sort of. By that, what I mean is that the beacons were lit. But not here. In fact, the beacons were lit before Gandalf and Pippin arrived in Minas Tirith. While they were riding, Pippin noticed them. He didn't know what they were, but Gandalf did. After seeing them, Gandalf continued to tell Pippin the tale of how Gondor didn't used to need the beacons because they had the seeing stones, the Palantir. But, of course, once Sauron entered the picture, those weren't safe to use anymore. Case in point, Saruman. Gandalf believed the Palantir was how Saruman was corrupted. However, as far as the beacons are concerned— Since Gandalf and Pippin saw them on their way to Minas Tirith, as you can probably guess, Pippin was not the one to start the chain reaction since well, he wasn't there when they were lit. As for that bit about the orcs crossing the river, we see the result of this happen after the beacons are lit. Faramir and his men fight bravely, but the orcs are too much. The men are driven back, forced to retreat to Minas Tirith. On their flight across the open plains between their fortress by the river and Minas Tirith, the Nazgul fly overhead and lay waste to the retreating men. Then Gandalf rushes out and with a force of light from his staff, push the Nazgul away. Faramir and the rest of his men make it back safely to Minas Tirith. That's the basic idea of what happened, but that's not really how it happened. The fortress by the river was called Asgiliath, and when Mordor's forces attacked it, it was defended by Faramir and his men like the movie shows. However, they did not retreat nearly as quickly as the movie makes it seem. What happened was that Faramir tried to return to Minas Tirith to consult with his father and Gandalf on what to do next. When he left, there were still a lot of men at Osgiliath holding off the orcs. Although Faramir and his men were attacked by Nazgul on their way back to Minas Tirith like the movie shows. And it was Gandalf who rode Shadowfax out to defend the soldiers from the Nazgul. Except Pippin was not riding Shadowfax with Gandalf like we see in the movie. When in the movie we see a white bolt of light shoot from Gandalf's staff, it was actually coming out of his hand. Going back to the movie, once Faramir arrives in Minas Tirith, his father is less than impressed with him. He blames him for the loss of Osgiliath, implying that Boromir would have defended it. Faramir isn't the same as Boromir in his father's eyes. Finally, Denethor sends Faramir back to Osgiliath to certain death. I mentioned this earlier because around this time in the movie is when we hear Pippin swearing his oath to Denethor. But, as we already learned, the timing for Pippin's oath is off. Faramir wasn't there. When Faramir did arrive back at Minas Tirith, though, he seemed to focus on Pippin. We see this sort of bewilderment in the movie, too. And it's at this point that Gandalf says something to the effect of, This isn't the first Hobbit you've seen, is it? Well, that little bit happened, and it was one of the first pieces of news of Frodo and Sam that Gandalf and Pippin had heard of in forever. But in front of Denethor, Gandalf stopped Pippin from exclaiming in glee. But it was too late. Denethor could see what they were saying, even if most of it was said at that time with their expressions. So, Faramir told them the story of how he came across Frodo, Sam, and Gollum. We learned about that in The Two Towers, so I won't recount it here, but it was after this that Faramir turned to the battle at hand. He had raced from where he saw Frodo to the fords of Osgiliath. Oh, and yes, Denethor did actually say he wished Faramir and Boromir's places were switched. However, there's a key bit of information the movie omits. Denethor wishes Faramir and Boromir's places were switched because, as Faramir just described meeting Frodo and Sam, he let them go. Meanwhile, Denethor believed that Boromir would have brought the ring to Gondor to help it defeat Mordor. Overall, that's the primary source of Denethor's anger at Faramir, although it's worth pointing out that there's a scene in the extended edition that touches briefly on this, but in general, the movie still implies that Denethor is upset at Faramir for losing Osgiliath. That's not really true because, well, Faramir left men at Osgiliath to defend it. Granted, It wasn't enough to hold back the advancing orcs, but it also wasn't the quick defeat like the movie implies. After some more discussion, Faramir bid his father give him leave. Denethor let him leave, telling him to get some rest because tomorrow's needs will be greater than today's. And so it was the next day that Denethor did what we see in the movie—sent his son, Faramir, back to try to defend Osgiliath. It was a move that seemed certain death. Oh. And there's something else the movie doesn't mention. You see, in the movie, there's a huge field between Osgiliath and Minas Tirith. That field is called the Pelennor. But what the movie doesn't show is that the Pelennor had a wall around it. Granted, that wall was not in the best of shape. Gandalf and Pippin came across some folks fixing it just before they made their way to Minas Tirith, but it was still there. And that provided yet another tactical place for defending the city. Before we see that, though, we're back with Frodo and Sam. This time... Gollum has laid a trap for Sam. This happens when they find there's no more lembas spread left. At first, Sam blames Gollum, but then Gollum points to the crumbs on Sam's cloak. Frodo grows suspicious of Sam and tells him to go back home. Remember earlier when I mentioned that Gollum never tried to pit Sam and Frodo against each other? Well, this is playing on that story. A story that never happened. After this, the movie shows us the result of Faramir's return to Osgiliath As expected, his men are cut down by the orcs. It's a very sad part of the movie where we see the men bravely fighting and losing their lives while, back in Minas Tirith, Dinothor is eating his lunch while Pippin sings a sad song for him. That song never happened. Neither did the slaughter at Asgiliath happen like we see in the movie. A big part of that is because of what we learned earlier. Faramir left a group of soldiers to defend Asgiliath when he went to Minas Tirith. He didn't lose the stronghold like the movie shows. So when Faramir returned, he was not walking into an orc ambush like we see in the movie. However, things were not going well. The orcs kept coming. They outnumbered the defenders ten to one and, slowly, were pushing them back. Faramir ordered the retreat to the walls of the Pelennor. It was around this point that Gandalf rode off to help in the defense. By mid-morning of the next day, Gandalf returned to Minas Tirith with news that they had failed to hold back the advancing horde. wasn't with Gandalf though. He'd chosen to command the rear guard continuing to fight the enemy to protect his men as they retreated. Pippin and Gandalf awaited in Minas Tirith for Faramir to arrive. More men trickled in but there was no sign of Faramir. Finally, he came but not in the manner they expected. Faramir's body rode into Minas Tirith on the back of Prince Imrahil's horse. He had found it on the battlefield and brought him back. We don't know for sure what state he was in, but there's a mention where, as Denethor sat next to his son, his face looked more death-like than Faramir's. Oh, and Prince Imrahil its not in the movie at all. Speaking of which, going back to the movie, we're with Theoden's men now. Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, and Aomer are with him as they're planning and preparing their armies for the march to Minas Tirith to answer the beacons. It's here while they're waiting for other men to assemble, that Elrond shows up. He chats with Aragorn, telling him that in addition to the force attacking Minas Tirith, Sauron has a secret force of ships sailing up from the south. He tells Aragorn his only hope is to command the cursed, the dead, in the mountains. They'll only answer to the King of Gondor. With this, Elrond reveals Endril, the sword forged from the shards of Narsil, the sword that was once shattered. That's the sword Isildur used to cut the ring from Sauron's fingers so many years ago. It's been reforged so Aragorn can take his rightful place as king and lead a new force that might give them a chance against Sauron's army. That is a very simplified version of the story. Let's start with the force of ships that Elrond warns Aragorn is coming from the south. The truth is that Elrond did not tell Aragorn about that. What happened was that Aragorn used the Palantir of Orthanc. If you recall, that's the ancient seeing stone that Pippin found in Isengard. When Aragorn used it, though, he disguised himself and refrained from telling Sauron anything. In this way, he was able to use it to his advantage to learn more about Sauron's plans without giving away too much of their own. That's how Aragorn learned of the Force coming from the south. That brings us to the sword, Anduril. Yes, that was the name of Aragorn's sword that was reforged from the shards of Narsil. However, Elrond did not give it to him here. In fact, Aragorn was given Anduril by Elrond before the Fellowship even left Rivendell, way back during the Council of Elrond. That happened in the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring. So the movie version of Aragorn should have had Anduril just about this entire time. As for Elrond's reminding Aragorn about the Paths of the Dead— the cursed murderers and traitors in the mountains—that wasn't really Elrond who told Aragorn that. It was Elrond's son, Elrohir who passed on the message from Elrond to Aragorn that if the days grow short, remember the paths of the dead. Then, once Aragorn saw the forces coming from the south in the Palantir, he determined that time was indeed growing short. So that's why he decided to go to the paths of the dead. Speaking of which— in the movie, we see Aragorn head off into the mountains with Legolas and Gimli. There were more than that, actually, that went. Elrond's sons, both Elrahir and Elidain, also went, as did some men of the Dúnedain. Oh, and remember that bit of comedy when we see Legolas enter the mountain before Gimli? Then we hear Gimli say something to the effect of, An elf will go underground where a dwarf won't? I'd never hear the end of it. That happened. Not in those exact words, but Legolas did go into the Haunted Mountain before Gimli. However, in the book, Gimli isn't the same comical relief that we see in the movie. So when a brave warrior such as Gimli, who had wandered countless deep places in Middle Earth without being afraid, was this time afraid to go into the mountain, that only heightened the amount of danger that they were in. Meanwhile, back in the movie, while Aragorn is heading off to the Paths of the Dead, The next morning we see Merry as he prepares to join the army's march. Theoden tells the hobbit that war is no place for him. Merry is disappointed. But then a soldier picks him up and puts him on their horse. It's Eowyn. She, too, was told to stay behind by Theoden, but she refused. Together, they join the army's march toward Minas Tirith. That happened, but with one major difference. In the movie, as soon as we see Eowyn pick up Merry, he says my lady." That's a clear indicator that he knows who she is. But he didn't. Eowyn disguised herself as a man and called herself Durnhelm. Apparently that disguise worked well because when she picked up Mary, he had no idea that Durnhelm was really Eowyn. That didn't happen until later when she removed her helmet. But that's getting ahead of our story. In the movie, we're back in Minas Tirith as the siege of the city begins. Mordor's forces are swarming the Pelennor fields, and the massive siege weapons are being pushed to the walls. Inside the city, Denethor finds Faramir and believes him to be dead. And with Mordor's troops surrounding the city, he also believes all hope is lost. He yells for soldiers to abandon the city, flee for your lives. Then, just as he's about to yell again, Gandalf's staff bonks him on the head. Yeah, bonks. It's a bit of a humorous moment, even if it is. A bit on the violent side of humor. That never happened. Gandalf never hit Denethor with his staff. He certainly never hit him multiple times like we see in the movie. Although it is true that Denethor had lost hope. But there's a good reason for this. That the movie never shows. And to be fair, it's not like this is even in the Return of the King book. You have to read The Unfinished Tales, a series of stories written by J.R.R. Tolkien but never finished in his lifetime. So they were finished by his son, Christopher, and published after Tolkien passed away. In the Unfinished Tales, we learn more about the reason why Denethor might have been pessimistic about being able to defeat Mordor's forces. And that is simply that for some time before Gandalf's arrive in Minas Tirith, it is very possible that Denethor had secretly been using the palantir of Minas Tirith. The reason I say it might be possible is because we don't really know for sure. Gandalf suspected it to be true. And after his interactions with Denethor, he believed it even more to be true. There were eight Palantiri that were made overall. One was the master with seven minor seeing stones used to communicate with key places throughout Middle-earth. So the one Sauriman used in Orthanc was not the only one. And if we look at the history of Middle-earth, it's very possible. After all, the men of Gondor did have an ancient seeing stone, and Minas Tirith had never been sacked throughout its history. So, it would not have been taken anywhere else. So, even though we don't know how much of an effect using the Palantir could have had on Denethor, we found out how Sauron was able to turn Sauron's mind with the ancient seeing stone. And if that happened to the great wizard Sauron, the White, we can only imagine what it could do to a man like Denethor. Although, as a quick side point to that, the stones were designed to be used by the heirs of Lindil. And as steward of Gondor, even though Denethor was not a direct heir, he had legitimate use for the stones. In that way, some have suggested perhaps that's why Denethor was able to use the stones to gather information without tarning like Saruman did. But in the end, we don't really know for sure. Meanwhile, going back to the movie now, we see Gollum leading Frodo up the path to Cirith Ungol you recall, in a previous scene with Frodo and Sam, we saw Gollum get in between the two hobbits and convince Frodo that Sam was untrustworthy. So Frodo sent Sam away. Now, Gollum leads Frodo into the tunnels at the top of the stairs. As they head inside, Gollum seems to disappear in the dark, leaving Frodo wandering around on his own. He stumbles and catches himself by putting his hand on the wall. Wait, the wall is sticky. What is this? Gollum's voice just says, You'll see... Oh yes, you will see. Outside the tunnels, Sam is heading back home as he is told to do earlier. As he's descending down the stairs, he trips and falls, only to notice the lemba spread. At this moment, Sam realizes that Gollum must have tricked Frodo on purpose and he's left his master with Gollum. He starts to climb back up the stairs. This will be a fast comparison because... Well, as we already mentioned, this whole angle of Gollum pitting Frodo and Sam against each other and Frodo sending Sam away never happened. What really happened is a little more simple. Gollum led Frodo and Sam up the stairs to Kirith Ungol, and once they were inside the tunnels, Gollum disappeared. The movie never shows this, but Gollum actually went to go visit Shelob. We don't really know what sort of interaction the two had, but some have assumed that perhaps Gollum was making some sort of a peace offering so she wouldn't attack him, but rather the two hobbits that he had brought to her lair. Speaking of Shelob, if we head back to the movie, that's when we finally get to learn who she is. If you recall, she is mentioned at the end of the two towers, and as we've learned so far, that's who Gollum is leading Frodo and Sam to, so she can take care of the hobbits and leave the ring for Gollum. She turns out to be the character I just mentioned, Shelob, a massive spider who lives in Kirith Ungol. The mere fact she's able to survive living so close to Mordor littered with orcs and Uruk-hai and all other sorts of evil creatures who are all happy to leave Shelob alone is, well, telling of her capabilities. These tunnels belong to her. In fact, some reviewers have suggested perhaps it's because of Shelob that Mordor's forces never really bothered to guard these tunnels very well. They figure Shelob is doing that for them. In the movie, Shelob chases Frodo through the tunnels. He manages to get away. This time. Outside the tunnels, he continues making his way. The movie flashes briefly back to the fighting at Minas Tirith before going back to Frodo. Then, just as he thinks he might be in the clear— Shelob stabs Frodo in the gut with a massive stinger in her abdomen. Before he falls back, Shelob is already wrapping him up. Just then, Sam arrives and manages to stab Shelob, scaring her away. But he thinks the motionless Frodo is dead. He's too late. There's some elements of this that happened, but I feel it's worth pointing out something that I didn't really mention before. All of this in Shelob's lair happened in the second book not in The Return of the King. With that said, of course, Sam and Frodo were together this whole time, as we already mentioned. And, of course, Shelob was a giant spider, so she didn't have a stinger in her abdomen like we see in the movie. She did, however, manage to bite Frodo while they were in the tunnels. That's another difference, because when we see the sting happen is when Frodo is actually outside the tunnels. Perhaps one reason that they changed this in the movie, though, is because the tunnels were really dark, pitch black, I mean, so dark that you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. And that really wouldn't translate too well to the big screen. In the movie, after Frodo is stung by Shelob, we see Sam think that he's already dead. So he leaves Frodo's body. Not like he can carry Frodo on his own. But then a couple of orcs come by, and as Sam hides out just out of their view, he hears them talking about how Frodo is not dead. He's just stunned, rendered immobile by Shelob's sting. Even though there were some changes here, too, for example, Sam was really hiding behind a door, not a little rocky outcropping, the basic gist is true. Sam thought Frodo was gone when he was bitten. And after Frodo's body was discovered by a few orcs canvassing the area, Sam overheard their conversation where they said Frodo was not dead at all. Back in the movie, and back in Minas Tirith, Denethor's lack of hope in winning the battle has driven him to build a funeral pile for himself and his son, Faramir. Of course, Faramir isn't dead, but Denethor thinks he is. Sounds familiar. But still, Pippin tries to plead with Denethor to let Faramir go, but he refuses. He releases Pippin from his service and tells the hobbit to go die in a way that seems suitable to him. Pippin runs to get Gandalf, who, hearing what Denethor is about to do, rides Shadowfax to the hall just as Denethor starts burning the pyre. Gandalf rears up Shadowfax, who knocks Denethor off the pyre, then... Pippin hops on and manages to roll Faramir off before Shadowfax knocks Denethor back onto the pyre, burning him alive. The last shot we see of Denethor is as he's burning and running off the edge of Minas Tirith all the way to his death. The basic gist of that happened, but there's a few key differences. For one, it wasn't Pippin who rolled Faramir away from the burning fire. Gandalf carried Faramir away from the fire. Well, that's not true. What I should have said was that Gandalf carried Faramir away from the pyre before the fire was even lit. And while Denethor was on the funeral pyre when it started burning, he didn't run out of the room, down the hall and off a massive walls of Minas Tirith while he was on fire. It was really much more simple than that. Denethor never saw Faramir was really alive before he burned on the pyre. Oh, And an important point the movie doesn't show is when Denethor died on the pyre, he had something in his hands. It was the palantir. Remember when we mentioned earlier that Gandalf suspected Denethor used it? Well, even though we'll never have 100% proof, it gets pretty close here because it was at this moment, just before Denethor died, that he held up his palantir to Gandalf and exclaimed that he was not blind. In fact, in the movie, this was a speech that Denethor gave to Gandalf as soon as he arrived in Minas Tirith. But when it happened here with the Palantir in his hand, that leads heavily to the opinion that Denethor had been using it all along. Gandalf tried to insist with him that, of course, if he'd been receiving counsel from what he saw in the Palantir, knowing that Sauron had been using the Seeing Stones too, then of course that counsel would lead Denethor to believe that all hope was futile. As the story goes, from that moment on, if anyone tried to look into the Palantir Denethor held until his dying moment you'd only see two hands burning in flame. Back in the movie, we see the battle is raging on within Minas Tirith. Orcs are crawling along the streets, forcing the defenders to upper levels of the city. Then, all of a sudden, we hear a horn sounding. Weary soldiers look to the west to see that Rohan has arrived. And have they ever? The Rohira make an impressive sight as they come into view. After a rousing speech by Theoden... They charge into the orcs. For the first time since Mordor's forces have arrived, there's hope. Real hope. While it is true the Rohirrim arrived at Minas Tirith, there's one key thing to point out here. The orcs never made it into Minas Tirith itself. Remember earlier when I mentioned that there were walls around the Pelennor fields? Those were the walls that Mordor's forces managed to break through. So the fighting was happening in the fields all this time. Another major difference was that in the movie, when we see Gandalf fighting alongside the soldiers, that never happened. He was dealing with stuff in the city, like Denethor's trying to burn Faramir alive, and it was not fighting in the fields. For a bit of context, Minas Tirith was built in seven different levels on the side of a hill, so each level of the city was walled all the way up to the citadel at the top level. The orcs had just managed to fight their way to the walls at the first level of the city right about the time the Rohirrim arrived. But I guess in the end, that's not really a big deal, since we see the battle get taken to the fields once again as the Rohirrim arrive and the orcs turn to face their new foe. Oh, and there was a major change in the movie here. It's not in the theatrical version, but in the extended edition, we see a confrontation between the Witch King and Gandalf. In the movie's version, the Witch King manages to destroy Gandalf's staff before being distracted by the Horns of Rohan. Yes, there really was a confrontation between the Witch King and Gandalf, but Gandalf's staff was never destroyed. The Horns of Rohan did make the Witch King turn away before we ever found out how that confrontation would have resulted. Some have speculated that because the movie's version shows the Witch King destroying Gandalf's staff, that perhaps the Witch King would win. After all, the prophecy surrounding the Witch-King foretold that no man could kill him. Then again, Gandalf was no mere man. Was he even human? Some have suggested that, as a wizard, Gandalf was not of the race of men. Back in the movie, we're at the massive battle of the Pelennor Fields. Although the movie doesn't mention it, we know from history that this battle is the greatest battle of the Third Age. It's an amazing fight to behold. According to the movie, soon after being charged with hope on the arrival of the Rohirrim, Mordor's forces get a reinforcement of their own, and that hope is dimmed. These new forces arrive with massive elephants that sweep the Rohirrim's horses as if they're flies from the windowsill. These elephants, called the Mumakil, did arrive, along with their riders, the forces of Herod. Although it's probably worth pointing out they didn't arrive so soon after the Rohirrim like we see in the movie. In fact, they didn't arrive until after Theoden died. But that's getting a little bit ahead of our story. And speaking of that event, going back to the movie, as the battle rages on, we see another major plot point. The Witch King sees Theoden and lands on him, killing Theoden's horse. The horse lands on Theoden, pinning him to the ground. As the Witch King lands, Eowyn blocks his path to finish off Theoden. But... She's wearing full armor, including a helmet. Aowen hacks at the Witch King's beast, taking off its neck with two strokes. On his own now, the Witch King mocks the soldier in front of him. No man can kill me. Then he grabs her neck before Mary sneaks up and stabs the Witch King from behind. Distracted for a moment, Aowen takes off her helmet, revealing who she is. I am no man. Then she thrusts her sword into the Witch-King's face, killing him. Afterward, she tends to Theoden and the two talk for a moment before he dies. The end result of that is true, but that's not exactly how it happened. For example, as soon as Eowyn stood between the Witch-King and Theoden, that's when the Witch-King mocked the soldier in front of him by saying, no man can kill me. And that's the moment when Eowyn revealed who she was. As we learned earlier, Aowen had gone into battle pretending to be a man named Durnhelm. Even Mary, who had been riding with her all this time, thought he was riding with a soldier named Durnhelm. So this reveal was a shock to him too. After this is when Aowen killed the Witch-king's beast. It didn't take multiple strokes like we see in the movie though, only one. After this, Mary did strike at the back of the Witch-king's leg. That distracts him just enough to give Aowen the moment to thrust her sword into the Witch-King. That both killed him but also shattered Eowyn's sword. The force of the Witch-King's demise also caused Eowyn to fall to the ground motionless. So probably the biggest change here is that Theoden never talked with Eowyn after the Witch-King's death. In fact, Theoden never even knew that Eowyn was laying near him on the battlefield when he died. It was Merry who talked to Theoden in the moments before the King's death. Going back to the movie, we heard about the Mumikil before. In the movie, we see the Rohirrim attacking the Mumikil as soon as they enter the battlefield. However, despite what we saw in the movie, we don't really know how the Mumikil were destroyed. We don't even know if they were. We only know that the Rohirrim did not attack them because their horses were afraid of the massive elephants. But that leads us to the next bit of the movie because it's how we see the massive battle at the Pelennor Fields come to a close. Although I should say that technically in the movie, the beginning of the end happens while it cuts back and forth to Eowyn's killing of the Witch-King. That happens when the ships arrive on the river near Osgiliath. The orcs are happy. One of them calls out, There's plenty of knife work to do here. Their smiles stop when they see three figures jump off the ship. It's Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas. Uh, those aren't the reinforcements the orcs expected. Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas start to march toward the horde of orcs looking on. At first, the orcs appear ready to challenge the three. But then, all of a sudden we see the green, ghostly figures following. As the heir to the throne of Gondor, Aragorn has gotten the aid of the dead army in the mountains. They can't be killed because, well, they're already dead, but they can't kill. And they start sweeping the battlefield, destroying Mordor's forces. That's not what happened. Oh. And the scene where we see Aomer coming across his father, Theoden, and Eowyn, and Mary after the battle is over, did not happen either. By that, what I mean is that the Ghost Army never arrived that day, and Aomer came across Theoden, Eowyn, and Mary while the battle was still raging. If you remember, after Aowen killed the Witch King, her injuries cast her into something like a coma where she did not move. So when aomer found them on the battlefield, he thought they were both dead, both Theoden and Eowyn. In anger and sadness, Éomer commanded some of his knights to carry his father's body away from the battlefield with the honors of a fallen king. They did so, also taking Éowyn's body back to Minas Tirith. Merry walked alongside the soldiers. So grieved was he that he paid no mind to the battle all around him. But Éomer did not travel with his fallen father. Now the king of Rohan, Éomer decided to ride off to his own death in an honorable way. He and the rest of his knights rode off, slaying foes as they went. It was around this time that the call went up of the arrival of the ships on the river, the Corsairs of Umbar. For the Rohirrim, the sight of even more reinforcements for Mordor's forces darkened their spirits. Surely, this was the beginning of the end. And yes, it was, but not how they thought. Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas were on the ship like we saw in the movie. Of course, as we learned earlier, those three were not the only to travel to the paths of the dead. Elrohir, Elodan, and Halbered were with them, as well as other men of the Dunedain. And here they were again. They didn't arrive with an army of ghosts like we see in the movie, but they did have an army with them. It was a massive group of soldiers who had been defending Gondor from the south. So this begs the question, what then of the ghost army? Why did Aragorn even go to the paths of the dead? After all, we learned earlier that they did go there. Well, there was a ghost army, and Aragorn did lead them out of the paths of the dead. They just didn't come to Minas Tirith. Instead, he went to Gondor in the south and freed the cities that were under siege from the forces of Mordor there. Once Gondor's southern forces and southern regions were free, Aragorn released the ghost army of their curse, and then those forces were free to travel up to Minas Tirith to join the fight there. They would also already taken care of the reinforcements that Sauron was trying to sneak up to Minas Tirith as a death blow to the battle. Instead, it was a death blow on the other side. There was plenty of hard fighting left to be done, but this was indeed the beginning of the end for the soldiers of Mordor. Oh, and that whole thing where Gimli and Legolas were counting how many enemies they killed? That didn't happen it did happen when they were fighting at Helm's Deep in the Two Towers, but not here during the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. Back in the movie, after Frodo has been taken by orcs, they fight over his Mithril shirt. In doing so, they seem to disregard Frodo, and that gives Sam the chance to free him. For the most part, this is basically what happened. There were some changes, of course. For one, while Sam was rescuing Frodo, he didn't kill multiple orcs like we see in the movie. Although, he did scare one off and cut off another's arm, which caused the orc to fall to his death, but most of the orc killing happened by other orcs who were fighting over Frodo's mithril armor. Sam, on the other hand, was focused on finding Frodo. When he finally managed to find his friend, their collective focus was getting out of that wretched place. Although, the movie is correct in showing that Sam took the ring off Frodo when he thought his friend was dead. So after Sam realized Frodo was not dead and rescued him, he then gave the ring back to Frodo. It's also worth pointing out that it was here that Sam offered to share the load of the ring with Frodo. With Mount Doom nearby, the load would only get more difficult, and Frodo had been carrying it all this way. Frodo snatched the ring from Sam, and for a moment Frodo's expression was one of panic and fear. From Frodo's point of view, Sam had looked like, almost like an orc trying to take his ring. But as soon as Frodo had the ring once again, he apologized to Sam. But he was resolved to carry it until the very end. Back in the movie, and unbeknownst to Frodo and Sam, after defeating Mordor's armies at Minas Tirith, Aragorn proposes they attack Mordor itself. The plan is to draw out the armies of Mordor still behind the Black Gates and away from the hobbits trying to make their way to Mount Doom. And, for the most part, it seems to work. Frodo and Sam are able to walk unnoticed across the now-deserted plains between Cerith Ungol and Mount Doom. This happened, although it was Gandalf who had the idea to attack the Black Gates as a diversion and not Aragorn. And I shall probably point out that there's no way tens of thousands of orcs could empty out the plains of Mordor as quickly as the movie makes it seem. But I guess I understand why they made this happen a lot faster in the movie than it actually did in the interest of time. Speaking of the movie, just as we see Sam and Frodo climbing Mount Doom, Gollum arrives and starts fighting the hobbits. Sam and Gollum continue fighting while Frodo heads into Mount Doom to get rid of the ring. Meanwhile, we see the Nazgul fly out to meet the battle already raging outside the Black Gates. The camera settles on Gandalf for a moment and we see a moth. The same moth we saw when Gandalf was on top of Orthanc at Isengard in the Two Towers. Then we hear Pippin. The eagles are coming. As cool as the aerial fight scene is between the giant eagles and the Nazgul, it didn't really happen. Oh, and it was Gandalf who shouted that the eagles were coming. But they never engaged the Nazgul. Instead, the Nazgul turned and fled back into Mordor because they had been summoned by their lord, Sauron. Heading back to the movie, we're back in Mount Doom when we see why the Nazgul were recalled and summoned. Just as Frodo is about to drop the ring in the lava flowing in the heart of the mountain, he finally succumbs to its power and puts it on. In shock, we see Sauron's eye look at the crack of Mount Doom, the entry to the center of Mount Doom's volcanic insides. That's why the Nazgul flew back into Mordor as the eagles were arriving. Back in the movie, the ring is finally destroyed when Gollum attacks the invisible Frodo inside Mount Doom. Remember, Frodo is wearing the ring. That's why he's invisible. Gollum bites off Frodo's finger with the ring on it. In the ensuing struggle, both Frodo and Gollum fall over the edge. Frodo manages to grab onto a ledge, but Gollum and the ring fall into the lava below. So ends Gollum, along with the ring, which sinks into the lava and is destroyed. Outside, we see the eye of Sauron scream as his tower crumbles. The end result of that happened, but there's more to the story. For one, we haven't talked about this at all, but the Eye of Sauron was not his only form. In fact, Gollum once described Sauron as having the form of a man with four fingers. There are references to the Eye of Sauron, so that's where we get the visual we see in the movie, but that certainly was not his only form. As for the demise of the ring, it is true that Frodo and Gollum struggled over it. During the fight, Gollum bit off the finger Frodo had put the ring on his third finger on his right hand, by the way, not the first finger of his left hand like we see in the movie. After this, Gollum danced around with the ring in Frodo's finger, and it was while he was dancing that he lost his balance and fell into the heart of Mount Doom, destroying both himself and the ring. It wasn't Frodo's fault because there was no second struggle like we see in the movie. Frodo didn't almost fall over the edge either like we see in the movie— It was a little more simple than that. As a little side note, in the movie we see after the ring is destroyed that there was a massive chasm that sinks beneath Mordor's forces and swallows them into the earth. That didn't really happen, though. Instead, again, it was a little more simple. Outside, once the ring was destroyed, the towers in Mordor crumbled, the Black Gate was cast to ruin, and there was a massive earthquake. This caused the rest of the orcs to flee. Seeing this, Gandalf declared the end of Sauron is here. The quest bearer has finished his quest. Going back to the movie, we see Frodo and Sam surrounded by a collapsing and exploding Mount Doom. They run for their lives as far as they can until, surrounded by lava and exhausted, they realize this is where their part of the story ends. They've done what they've set out to do, it's over. Time passes. The hobbits have passed out on a rock surrounded by a sea of molten rock. In the distance, we see the eagles come and bear the hobbits away to safety. That happened, but not quite in the way we see in the movie. You see, after the eagles arrived to help with the battle at the Black Gates, it was Gandalf who asked the eagles for one last favor at the end of that fight. Unlike what we see in the movie, though, Gandalf actually rode the chief of the eagles named Two other eagles went with him as they flew over Mount Doom and the molten rock being exploded below. And so, with Gwahir's great eyesight, he saw the two hobbits on the lonely pile of ash that was surrounded by molten rock. They were stuck, just like we see in the movie. So the three eagles rescued the two hobbits from Mount Doom. Going back to the movie, things end as we learned what happens to our main characters. Let's start with Aragorn. According to the movie, Gandalf crowns Aragorn the King of the West. He marries Arwen, and just as Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin are about to bow to the new king, Aragorn stops them. You bow to no one, he says. Instead, everyone bows to the four hobbits who save the world. Everyone seems happy. As you can probably guess by now, the overall gist of this happened, but there's more to the story. For one, everyone did not bow to the four hobbits, even if they did deserve it. But that doesn't mean they weren't honored. It was Faramir who retrieved the ancient crown from the tomb of the last king, Irinor. It was time for a new king, Aragorn. Before he would be crowned, though, Aragorn asked the ring-bearer to deliver the crown to him. This was in recognition of Frodo's deeds that made all of this possible. He also requested that Mithrandir would, if He felt Aragorn worthy, be the one to place the crown upon his head. As Aragorn put it, this whole doing was Mithrandir's, and so it was his victory. If you remember, Mithrandir is what they called Gandalf in Gondor. And that's how it happened. After this, trumpets blew and everyone celebrated the new King Elisar, another name for Aragorn. From that day forward, King Elisar's reign saw Minas Tirith rise to new heights of glory like it had never seen before. Oh, and yes, Aragorn did marry Arwen. For her part, she gave up an immortal life to be with the man she loved. The movie doesn't mention this—and to be honest, the book doesn't either—but we know from J.R.R. Tolkien's other writings that Aragorn went on to live 210 years and ruled 122 years as king. He died in the year 120 of the Fourth Age. Arwen died one year later. As a little side note, remember earlier when Eowyn had a crush on Aragorn? Well, as he and the rest of the Fellowship were off fighting in Mordor, Eowyn was recovering from when she fell into a coma after killing the Witch King while Faramir was also recovering from his injuries. So while the two were in Minas Tirith, Eowyn and Faramir talked a lot. This was the budding of what would become a new love between the two. Going back to the movie, next we see the hobbits returning home to the Shire. Just like he said he'd do, Samwise marries the woman he loved, Rosie Cotton. For his part, Frodo adds his tale to the book that Bilbo wrote. So now it's more than There and Back Again, A Hobbit's Tale, but it also has The Lord of the Rings. That's not how it happened at all. I'll start with the latter part because that's the closest to what we see in the movie. By that I'm referring to the title page of the book that Bilbo started and Frodo finished. It was actually a lot messier than that. Bilbo himself had a number of titles for his book, My Diary, My Unexpected Journey, and so on before he settled on a name. Each of these were scrawled on the title page and crossed out before the final one, there and back again. As for Frodo's part, he didn't just call it The Lord of the Rings, but rather titled it The Downfall of the Lord of the Rings and The Return of the King. That brings us to the hobbits returning to the Shire. We see this happen in the movie, and when they get there, we see that life in the Shire is as it always was. It's almost as if they never even noticed the Great War in the East. Well, they might not have, but the movie never shows that the war was brought to them. This was a major change in the movie, actually. Do you remember when I mentioned that Sauron didn't die in his tower at Isengard? At that time, I also mentioned that he did eventually die. Just not then, and not there. Well, this is where that comes back into the picture. It started when Merry, Pippin, Sam, and Frodo were nearly home. They're nearly arrested for making trouble at night near the Ron Bridge, which has been barred from entry at night. That's new. Then, when they're in Bywater, a band of ruffians attacked the four hobbits. They must have assumed the hobbits would be unarmed. Not these hobbits. The four scare off the ruffians. But the troubles continue. More ruffians try to capture Farmer Cotton and the hobbits have to rescue him. Pippin goes off to get some help from his kinsmen and just in time too because a massive group of ruffians come to Bywater to attack. And that's how what we now know of as the Battle of Bywater happened, the final official battle in the War of the Ring. After the Battle of Bywater, a new development surprised the hobbits. Who was behind all these ruffians in the Shire? They come to find out the boss was someone named Sharky. You see, while the Fellowship was making their way to Mordor and defeating Sauron, Saruman had escaped the tower at Isengard. He made his way to the Shire and started going by the name Sharky. Or I guess I should say, I should correct that actually by saying that's what his people called him. Saruman said that's what his followers called him in Isengard too, so apparently that name followed him to the Shire. As if that weren't bad enough, Saruman took up residence at Bag End, where Bilbo and Frodo used to live, along with his servant, Grima Wormtongue. But alas, I mentioned a while ago that it was indeed Grima Wormtongue who killed Saruman. And it was. When the hobbits confronted Saruman in the Shire, Saruman didn't try to kill them. We don't really know why, although some have speculated it might have been a mixture of Saruman's diminished powers as well as the destruction of the ring. Even though he admitted to hating Frodo for all the things he'd done He said he was going to disappear and never trouble them again. Then, as he was leaving, Frodo called out to Wormtongue. You don't have to go with him, Frodo said. For a moment, Wormtongue hesitated. Frodo insisted, saying that he knows Wormtongue has done no harm. The evil was all Saruman's doing. To this, Saruman laughed. Then he recounted the tale of how Wormtongue killed Lotho Sackville Baggins. As Saruman told the story, Wormtongue's face turned red. He got angry, insisting that Saruman had made him kill Lotho. Saruman just chuckled. You'll do what your boss says, and right now, your boss is telling you to follow along. To add insult to injury, Saruman followed this up by kicking Wormtongue in the face. This enraged Wormtongue so much that he jumped on Saruman's back and slit his throat with a knife. At that exact moment, Pippin, Merry, and Sam, who had had their weapons ready this entire time, let loose arrows and killed Wormtongue. It all happened so fast that Frodo didn't have the chance to say anything before the two were dead. So, that is how Sauron's demise truly came to be. Going back to the movie, there's one last surprise that awaits the hobbits. Well, not all of them. As the elves are in the Grey Havens, leaving Middle-earth, Frodo shocks Pippin, Merry, and Sam by announcing that he's going to join Bilbo, Gandalf, Elrond, and Galadriel they depart Middle-earth. It's a sad ending. A bittersweet one. When Frodo returned home to the Shire from the war, he realized the home he craved for so long isn't the same home as he thought it was. So he decides to leave Middle-earth. That happened, but not quite in the way the movie shows. You see, it wasn't really a surprise to everyone. For one, Sam knew that Frodo was leaving Middle-earth. As for Merry and Pippin, we see them traveling along with everyone else to the Grey Havens in the movie, but that didn't happen. They were there, though. They got there just before Frodo left to tell their friend one last goodbye. Oh, and although Bilbo was there, he wasn't the old, frail hobbit we see in the movie. Well, he was old, at least in human terms, but not frail. He rode his own pony to the Grey Havens and, for all intents and purposes, seemed to be, well, normal. As a side note, the movie never mentions this, but some have suggested that in leaving Middle Earth, Bilbo and Frodo would live forever. The idea behind this is that in the land that the elves come from, there is no death. After all, elves are immortal and their home is called the Undying Lands. Elves don't usually let anyone else go to and from their homeland, but letting Bilbo and Frodo go home with them perhaps it was more than just letting them live out the rest of their days in the land of the elves. Perhaps it was to prolong their lives, to give them immortality. At least, that's one version of the story. Oh, and we don't see this in the movie at all, but as their ship sailed into the distance, Frodo held up the phial of Galadriel that had brought him light in dark places. The three hobbits watched the light until it disappeared over the horizon. Speaking of the movie, though, heading back there, the final scene we see is of Sam. Frodo's voiceover provides the audio as we see Sam walking the path to Bag End. A little girl rushes out to meet him, followed by Rosie, who's holding a boy. Rosie and Sam kiss before Sam turns and says, I'm back. Then the four happy hobbits head inside and close the door. And that is a fairly accurate version of how our story today comes to a close— After leaving the Grey Havens and saying goodbye to Frodo, the three hobbits, Merry, Pippin, and Sam returned to the Shire. For a bit of geographical context, the Grey Havens are to the west of the Shire. It's roughly the same distance from Hobbiton as Weathertop is, except Weathertop is to the east, while the Grey Havens are to the west. The journey back to the Shire was a quiet one. Pippin, Merry, and Sam didn't say anything to each other the entire way. No doubt they had a lot on their minds. When they finally reached the East Road, they split up. Pippin and Mary returned home to Buckland while Sam went to his home and Frodo's former home, Bag End. The sun was setting by the time Sam arrived home. He was cheered by the happy glow of light coming from inside Bag End. He wasn't greeted by a child outside his home—in fact, Sam and Rosie didn't have two kids like we see in the movie, just one, a little girl named Eleanor. So it wasn't his children who greeted him when he arrived home that evening, but rather the smell of the evening meal. Heading inside, Sam sat in his chair at the dinner table, and Rosie put Eleanor on his lap. And that's when, just like the movie shows, Samwise took a deep breath and spoke those final words. Well, I'm back. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. Obviously we didn't get to cover every single change they made in the movie, but I hope you enjoy this look at the conclusion to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. If you want to dig deeper into some of those changes, of course I'd recommend picking up the book itself. There's also a number of other books that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote that tell additional stories about the characters in the trilogy. In addition to the books, there's a lot of great resources online that compare the books to the movies that were extremely helpful throughout this episode as well as the first two. Check out those links on this episode's page over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number 1. Aragorn did not lead the dead army to destroy Mordor's forces at Minas Tirith. Number 2. Frodo was not the only one who carried the ring. Sam did, too. Number 3. Merry died on the battlefield at the Pelennor Fields. Did you find out which one is a lie? As we learned, Aragorn did lead the dead army against Mordor's forces, just not at Minas Tirith like we see in the movie. They cleared out the forces in the south, freeing up those soldiers to go up to Minas Tirith. So, number 1 is true. We also learned that when Shelob bit Frodo, Sam thought he was dead, so he took the ring with the intention of finishing the quest. However, he found out Frodo was not dead and rescued his friend and returned the ring to him. But because Sam did carry the ring for that time, even if it was brief, that means number two is true as well. So that means number three is the lie. As we learned at the end, Merry and Pippin both returned to the Shire after seeing Bilbo, Frodo. And Gandalf and the others off at the Grey Havens. Although as a little bit of extra trivia, Frodo's restlessness helped him decide to leave Middle-earth and that restlessness caught up with Merry and Pippin too. They didn't leave Middle-earth though but they didn't stay in the Shire for the rest of their lives either. They actually returned to Rohan and then Gondor in the year 64 of the Fourth Age. It was in Gondor where Merry and Pippin both died. Although we don't know for sure when they passed away as that date was never recorded. What we do know though is that after they died, their graves were laid to rest alongside the kings of Gondor. When Aragorn died in the year 120 of the Fourth Age, Merry and Pippin's graves were moved to be alongside Aragorn's. And that brings us to an end of this episode and with it the final chapter in this three-part series on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I hope you've enjoyed listening to these as much as I've had creating them. And if you've made it this far into the episode, you've got to be one of the diehard fans of the show, so thank you. If you want to get even more bonus episodes and you have the means to support the podcast, well, you'd have my eternal gratitude. It's through the support of great folks like you that I can continue to pay for the movies, books, resources, hosting, software, hardware, and everything it takes to keep the show going. And as a way of saying thanks, in the off weeks between the fortnightly release of the regular podcast, I release minisodes covering fictional movies. For example, we've looked at some of the history depicted in movies like Captain America, Wonder Woman, Jurassic Park, The Mummy, Twister, Aladdin, and so many more. You can get access to those over on the producer's feed at baseonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.